Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. My guest today is State Senate Deputy Leader Michael Gennaris, a Democrat from Queens who currently represents the 12th State Senate District. The contours of that district are changing a bit due to redistricting, and there's elections this year for all 63 State Senate seats with primaries in August and the general election to come this fall, where Democrats are attempting to keep their supermajority in that State Senate, and there will be a number of Uh, contested elections come the fall in some swing districts. We'll get into that in a moment. Senator Gennaris has been a leader of his party's takeover of the state Senate, which occurred through the 2018 elections and the growth into the current supermajority. And as Senate deputy leader, uh, working with Senate Majority Leader Andre Stewart-Cousins and other colleagues, Senator Gennaris has been at the forefront of negotiating many policy and budget decisions of the last four years, including the recent special session legislation in Albany related to gun control after the Supreme Court struck down New York's concealed carry law. Before that, the legislature and Governor Kathy Hochul also made major decisions related to abortion protections, criminal justice reform, child care, climate, and much more. Some of those decisions are about things not to pass, uh, but many were about things that did pass or budget allocations and New York also acting uh, in anticipation and in response to the other major Supreme Court ruling of recent months related to uh, striking down Roe v. Wade abortion rights. Uh, So a lot to discuss with Senator Michael Gennaris. That's only uh, a a few of the broad strokes. We're going to get into a lot here because there's also Uh, some major New York State news to respond to uh, here today as well. We are speaking on Tuesday, July 12th, important context for those listening uh, at various points in the coming days and weeks, speaking here on Tuesday, July 12th, 2022, my conversation with State Senator Michael Gennaris in just one moment. First, if you missed any of our reporting at Gotham Gazette, find us at GothamGazette.com. We've been covering the ongoing elections of 2022 in New York, including the statewide races, state assembly, House of Representatives, and state Senate as well. Here on Max Politics, we've been continuing a variety of conversations, but I've started to interview the major candidates running in the wide open 10th Congressional District of New York. That's a newly drawn district, like men, like all of them uh, have had uh, boundaries changed. But this one is now a race for lower Manhattan and a big chunk of Brooklyn where there is no incumbent running. It's a very interesting race. I've started uh, to interview the candidates in that race. I've already had conversations with Carlina Rivera, Dan Goldman, and Joanne Simon, and discussions coming up with Yulene New, Bill de Blasio, and others. Uh, Hopefully, Representative Mondaire Jones will agree to an interview. He's been uh, the more challenging one to schedule. So uh, if his people are listening, uh, get back in touch so we can have Mondaire Jones on the show as well as he moves from his current upstate, uh, no, Hudson Valley district, I should say, uh, to, uh, to Brooklyn to run in the new 10th district. All right. State Senator Michael Gennaris, deputy leader of the state Senate, a Democrat from Queens, uh, architect of campaign uh, campaigning for Senate Democrats and uh, things related to politics and policy for New York Democrats, especially in the state Senate. Thanks for being here and taking the time. Thanks for having me, Ben. 
So if I didn't cover enough in the introduction there, uh, the day before we're speaking here on Tuesday, July 12th, we got news of the planned uh, resignation now and retirement of the New York Chief Judge of the Court of Appeals, Janet DeFiori, uh, this coming after a number of major decisions by the state's highest court, uh, the Court of Appeals. Uh, it's apparently coming amid some kind of uh, ethics investigation into her that we're, you know, awaiting more news on. But there's been some reporting from the New York Law Journal and elsewhere that there's there's something uh, going on there where where she was being investigated in some way. So let's uh, you, you reacted uh, initially in a statement. Um, but what what's your reaction to her announcement uh, that she's resigning at the end of August? Uh, what do you think, um, you know, what do you think needs to happen from here as, as we look to the future of the state's highest court? Well, it was a surprise, I think, for everyone, because generally someone in that important position doesn't just walk out the door with three years left um, in her term. Uh, but I'll, that'll sort itself out. I read what you read about uh, why that may have happened. And I guess we'll, we'll find out if there was any malfeasance there. But my interest is always in what this means for the state from a policy perspective, from the, in terms of the direction of the court. And it gives us a really great opportunity to uh, take corrective action uh, because the court has drifted uh, into a place that's not really representing the values of our state. Uh, it has become a court, thanks to the four members that have stuck together um, uh, in this majority block that we've had of late, uh, that has been ruling in favor of the most powerful against um, the uh, interests of uh, of those who need government on their side. And, and that's uh, whether that's uh, employers uh, uh, ruling over unsafe workplaces and abusing their employees or landlords over tenants or um, so many of the uh, things that we've seen, warrantless searches, for example, have been given a lot more leeway than they used to have. These are all things that are uh, not in keeping with the direction the state has been going. It's the reason we have super majorities uh, in both houses that have been driving this progressive uh, direction for our state and the court has been an outlier. Uh, and what we don't want is to have our own version of the U.S. Supreme Court right here in New York where you have this majority block kind of driving um, uh, uh, legal interpretations in the wrong direction. That's what we had with the resignation of Janet DeFiori, now we have an opportunity to, to fix that here in New York. And we should note, of course, that uh, nominations from the governor to the state's highest court, the Court of Appeals, have to be confirmed by your state Senate. Uh, so what's the process like and how are you seeking to send a message to the governor about who you want to see brought before uh, your chamber? Well, the governor gets to make the uh the nomination, and we respect that and want to give her leeway to, to do that. I think what I have said and other of my colleagues have said, uh, broadly speaking, uh, is the type of direction we'd like to see the court move and the type of um, correction we'd like to see as it results, as it relates to uh, to the court. And, and so we'll, we'll await her nomination and, and act accordingly. The one thing that's interesting is I've been around a long time and there has never been a confirmation to the Court of Appeals that has been rejected by the state Senate. Mm -hmm. We're trying to take, uh, and we have since we took the majority just a couple of years ago, take a more um, robust uh, role in, in these confirmations. They used to be pro forma. Hearings would often be on the same day as the actual vote. Um, we've already uh, done away with that practice, but uh, the 
parameters of the type of oversight that the confirmation process brings is something we're still uh, uh, anxious just to expand. I know Senator Hoylman, as the chair of the Judiciary Committee, is also anxious to um, fulfill our roles uh, much more responsibly than they had been in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, um, some of the of the current court uh, was confirmed before Democrats took the majority, uh, but but several members confirmed since you've been in the majority, including um, uh, multiple members of the court confirmed. It last year in 2021, and there was a particular battle over uh, Judge uh, Madeline Singus, who um, who you were particularly supportive of, and there was a significant pro- progressive uh, attempt to to stop her. She was the Nassau County District Attorney. Any regrets on that process and and the ways that the state Senate has approached those nominations, especially last year? Well, like I said, I've been around a long time and I'm, I'm proud of so much of the work I've done. Uh, that for me was was not something I'm particularly proud of looking back on it. Uh, I, I do regret supporting the nomination. I think it was a mistake. Um, and, uh, you know, I make I made a lot of calls in my many years in public service. That was one that was not the right one. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, with the DeFiori resignation, now we have a great opportunity to, to learn from that experience and uh, and take things back in the direction they should go. Mm-hmm. And so what's your, uh, what's your, what's the expected timeline here? I mean, this looks like there's going to have to be some sort of special session later this year. Uh, well, I'm, I don't know about that. The, mm-hmm. There's a nominating commission that has to set its own timeline to receive applications, evaluate them, and then submit a short list to the governor. That's how the process works. Uh, the governor will get a short list of seven names from which to choose, and then she will send it on to the Senate. So that process can it can be rushed or it can take several months. So uh, whether it can hold until we're back in session in January or it gets done more quickly, is too, too soon to tell. And this, um, the, the Court of Appeals connects obviously directly to uh, the, the redistricting process that just unfolded, and there were uh, a number of twists and turns in that process. Connect for for listeners and for New Yorkers, uh, you know, sort of, or give your perspective on, uh, you know, what happened in the redistricting process, the role of of this uh, more conservative Court of Appeals, uh, as you put it. Um, and, and, you know, sort of how that has unfolded for New Yorkers here in this, uh, this tumultuous redistricting and election year. Well, it was a very, very disappointing decision, uh, rendered by the court of appeals as it relates to that. It was in keeping with the very partisan and Republican judge that was hearing the case in the first instance from Stu Bend County. Um, it would, I, I think it's fair to say that, uh, there could be disagreement about whether the lines in particular for a particular uh, house of the state legislature or of Congress um, may have had some pieces of it that needed correction. Uh, but to say that the legislature had no power to draw the lines at all, which is what the court of appeals ultimately did is completely mm-hmm. out of left field um, and not in keeping with the very explicit direction of the state constitution. Now our system says that the Court of Appeals is the final arbiter. So that is what it is. And we're now dealing with uh, the lines that they drew. It's settled in that respect. Uh, but it was one of a series of poor decisions uh, issued by Shanti Fiori's court and uh, supported by the remaining three uh, members that stuck with her. Did you do you feel that in retrospect, you overreached a bit in how those lines were drawn? You know, uh, was it 
I mean, I know there's procedural grounds here too that relate to this, you know, quote unquote, independent commission that wound up never passing bipartisan lines. Uh, there's there's a, there's a lot of elements to this, but do you think you overreached a bit? In, no, in how you no, the lines? no. And it's it's a very easy to say no to that because the decision was nonsensical to say the Constitution explicitly provides that the legislature should have the opportunity to correct any uh, problems with the lines that were found. Um, and so to, to overreach, you're suggesting that the lines should have been drawn uh, uh, a certain different way and somehow that would have passed muster. But what the Court of Appeals said was we didn't have the right to draw any lines whatsoever of any kind. Mm-hmm. And so the state Senate lines, for example, even the Republican uh, judge at the trial court level said that the Senate lines, there is not sufficient proof that those were drawn for partisan advantage and they should be allowed to stand. But those were knocked out. So overreach, well, we didn't even overreach mm-hmm. in the Senate lines, according wow. to the Republican judge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the Court of Appeals decided every all the lines came out, including now, as as we learned, the assembly lines, which will have to be redrawn for the 24 elections because there was insufficient time to do it uh, for this year. Right. I mean, my point in saying that is there was so much, obviously, so much attention on how the lines would, in some instances, you know, favor Democrats, especially in the in. Right. Uh, but 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 if it started to interrupt you, Ben, but no, 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 it's OK, but but I understand the ruling if, if, on the if, procedural. If, right. Yeah. But that's important. Yeah. That's important distinction no, no, yes, as it, it relates to your question, because if the decision was simply the lines for Congress were drawn impermissibly in an impermissibly partisan fashion, mm-hmm. the remedy, according to the Constitution, is send it back to the legislature with direction to do it differently. Mm-hmm. That didn't get to happen because the court just took it out of the legislature's hands entirely in an extra constitutional manner. Um, Judge Troutman, interesting. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, 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 please, please. please. I was going to say Judge Troutman, interestingly, um, supported the broader decision, uh, but then also suggested that this should go back for uh, a reinstitution of the process, not just handed over to a random special master from Pennsylvania who honestly did not know the communities and throughout the state of New York that he was drawing the lines for in a very abbreviated fashion. It was a, it was a, it was a partisan attack by the Court of Appeals. Uh, it's unfortunate, but we're living with the consequences of it. We'll move forward. Do you, do you need to revisit the redistricting amendment? that was passed back in 2014 that led to this commission that then deadlocked. And part of the issue at play here procedurally is that this commission did not do its job. Do you need to revisit that? And, and uh, well, we, we should, we should absolutely revisit it even before the process that unfolded this year. We should, re, we, I would tell well, you, we should revisit it. I was I, against it back then. <laughs> forgive me. Actually, I should mention you, you did try to revisit it to some extent through a ballot amendment that was defeated by voters last year. So there, there has right. been, <laughs> but yeah. those, those, those were tweaks, again, I guess. Those, yeah, question. those were, those were tweaks mostly related to the calendar. We didn't have the time to um, wholesale change the commission approach because um, if that, if any amendment that we had passed since we took the majority was enacted, it would go into effect January of this year mm-hmm. <laughs> and the lines had to be drawn this year. So we right. certainly didn't have time to revisit the entire process. That was a dirty deal by Andrew Cuomo and the Senate Republicans back in, in 2014 um, or in 2012. I think it went on the ballot in 2014. Um, but yes, I would, I would say as an advocate for a, a fair and true process, yeah, we should absolutely revisit it. We have now some time to do that. The next redistricting is, of course, a decade away. So yeah. we have the opportunity now to, to do it right and put something on the ballot that um, New Yorkers deserve. I know you saying you have time to you know think about that more and flesh it out. But is there a particular way that you 
personally want to try to shape that? I mean, it, how would you sort of think about what the new next system should look like? Well, it shouldn't be something that is designed for deadlock. And that's what we knew. And you'd find in the public record numerous statements from myself and other colleagues uh, predicting exactly what happened <laughs> as the result. Uh, that when you set up a commission that has five Democrats and five Republicans on it, you're going to get a five to five tie on every uh, important decision they have to make. That's, of course, exactly what took place uh, this year. And uh, that's what led to the crisis we had, where even though there should not have been a question that the legislature at that point gets to intervene, uh, the court in its wrongheaded decision uh, found that, therefore, the courts get to draw the lines, which Mm -hmm. if this is allowed to to uh, exist in perpetuity, that will happen every 10 years because Mm -hmm. it will be in either the Democrat appointees or the Republican appointees interest to have a court do it instead of um, allowing the legislature to have final say, which is what the Constitution provides. So there will be a guaranteed deadlock at the commission level every 10 years unless we change this process. Mm -hmm. Now, (laughs) there was an interesting dynamic going on where for Republicans, it was advantageous not to agree to something so that eventually they were banking on this exact thing that happened where Democrats would draw the lines, there would be a a suit and they would take their chances in the courts. Democrats, many Democrats were celebrating the deadlock because then the legislature would get got to draw the lines. Right. I mean, this was not necessarily such a fiasco. Um, uh, You know, there, there was a time when many Democrats were celebrating the ability of the legislature to draw the lines. Well, like as someone who was involved in that process, uh, we weren't celebrating or complaining. We were dealing with what was in front of us. And mm-hmm. it's pretty clear that the constitutional process allowed for the legislature at the final say, approval or disapproval of what the commission does. Uh, the idea that if the commission deadlocks, we don't have that ability is ludicrous on its face. So we had a ludicrous decision from the Court of Appeals. Uh, so we were dealing with what we had in front of us. We came up with lines that complied uh, explicitly with all the requirements uh, and statute and in in the constitution um and uh the court went haywire on it so now we're dealing with i mean just think about this if the commission had come up with a plan we had the ability to reject it and then do our own lines no one's disputing that Mm -hmm. it's just that because the commission did not come up with a plan therefore we lose that power it's 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 silly it was a vindictive decision by a court gone uh, haywire. And fortunately, we have the opportunity to change the direction of the court too late uh, as it relates to uh, the redistricting process. But on so many issues of importance to the state, uh, we will have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. All right. Speaking of redistricting, your district is changing a bit. Uh, What's going on? You know, describe for folks the changes in your district and how you're handling that. You have to run for reelection this year. Um, how's your district shifting and, and don't you have, do you have to move? What, what, what's, uh, no, I don't have to move, but I mean, as a good example, I mean, I know legally you don't have to move, but no, no, in in reality, I live in the district I'm not seeking. Um, but the, this is a good example of how, um, some academic from Pennsylvania doesn't understand our communities. Astoria, which is a well-known defined neighborhood in New York city, has been split into three pieces um, with what they did. They sliced it uh, vertically in half and then took a piece of the northern uh, part off and connected it to the far reaches of northeast Queens. Um, But again, as I mentioned, we're dealing with what's in front of us. So um, I I live in the eastern half of the district they uh, 
they drew, still the same number, District 12. Um, it uh, still contains half of my current district, um, a good chunk of Astoria right. together with Sunnyside and Woodside and Ridgewood, and then adds communities in Maspeth and Elmhurst, um, uh, where which are great neighborhoods to represent. I'm looking forward to getting to know the residents of, of those communities better than I already do, and we'll, we'll keep moving forward. And now there's a new... 59th state senate district that is is now tucked into uh <laughs> the waterfront of queens and and stretches uh into into manhattan a very interesting new district there um, and into and into brooklyn ben. and into so, brooklyn, yes. as far as anyone can remember it's the first tri-borough district which again mm-hmm. I, I keep pointing out examples of the absurdity of what was done but but we now have a, a a waterfront Queens and Brooklyn uh, uh-huh. crossing over into Stytown and uh, some parts of Midtown East and Manhattan uh, district. Mm-hmm. And there are last count, I think five candidates uh, who are right. running for that office. It'll be a robust primary. And maybe By the, best the way, person win. if folks want to look at uh, Senator Janaris's new 12th district and current 12th district and this new 59th state Senate district, please do head to the redistricting in you New York website from our friends at the CUNY mapping service and Steve Romaluski there who uh, put together these great interactive maps uh, redistricting in you New York. You can look it up. Um, if, if I can add to that, it's please. a great, it's a great um, resource uh, and we were using it ourselves <laughs> for mm-hmm. part of this mm-hmm. process um, because it yeah. is a really great way to kind of compare current districts and new districts and, and see the changes. You brought up uh, the, the competitive race in that new 59th district. Uh, do you have a candidate? Are you going to be indoor? Are you endorsing somebody? Do you want to? Yeah, endorse, I've, let I've, us I've, I've already endorsed uh, Kristen Gonzalez, oh, yeah. who okay. um, uh, lives in the Long Island City portion of that district. She has been active. I met her uh, originally when she was advocating for uh, the Build Public uh, Renewables Act, which we passed in the Senate this year. Um, so someone who has been active on the environment, uh, an organizer on so many important causes, and I think she'll make a great senator. Um, but as uh, is often the case uh, in these situations, so many of the candidates are people I know and have worked with, and uh, I think Kristen is the best choice, and I'm happy to lend her my support. But uh, there'll be there'll be a primary, and the voters will ultimately decide. Yes, competitive primary unfolding there, one of the few open seats. Uh, your district, just to talk about it for one more moment, gets a bit, uh, maybe even significantly more moderate to conservative in this redistricting. How does that impact you and your politics and how you have to think about appealing to voters and representing your district? Well, the the uh, parlor game of uh, trying to analyze why elected officials do what they do is always fun. <laughs> but but I have been uh, remarkably consistent from my first days in the assembly all the way through my my current uh, point uh, in the state senate in leadership, and I just do what I think is right, and then I work to tell the people I represent why I did it. And to the extent we agree, then that's great. And if we don't, I try and explain to them my reasoning. Uh, When I was first elected to the assembly, it was a very uh, conservative, quote unquote, democratic area. Dennis Butler was my predecessor. He would carry the uh, amendment to prohibit uh, Medicaid funding of abortions. Um, And uh, it was, you know, back when George Anorado and Peter Vallone Sr. represented the neighborhood. And I was seen as an outlier on on the left back then when I was representing mm-hmm. the neighborhood. Uh, times change, New York City changes, and uh, obviously we're now represented by the likes of AOC and, and Tiffany Caban, and it's a different uh, population here. 
but for me, it kind of gravitated to where I had already been. Um, and so trying to do the right thing for people, trying to do the right thing for uh, uh, those uh, in our state who usually get the short end of the stick, who don't have a lot of money behind them, who don't have a lot of power. Um, that's the job of an elected official, uh, in my view, is give the power to those people who don't otherwise have it. The rich people, they can handle themselves. They know how to influence elections and influence decision makers uh, with their money. And uh, I don't think that's a good thing, but they certainly don't need extra help. Uh, but uh, people who have trouble paying their rent in an increasingly unaffordable city uh, or people who are being abused in the workplace and uh, are not allowed to organize properly, which we're dealing with at one of our local Starbucks right now, in fact, um, those are the people that I try and, and stand up for and use the power I have to uh, advance uh, their interests. That's always been the case, no matter what my district has looked like. And so mm -hmm. now I still have uh, about half of the, of the district I currently represent and then the new parts, I will work hard to let them know what I'm doing to try and improve their lives. As you're speaking with people, um, I imagine in some parts of this new district, especially, uh, that, well, I imagine in various parts of this district, bail reform must come up. And in some parts of the district, people want to know why the legislature agreed to certain rollbacks, changes to the law uh, two different times. Now, the second time this year under Governor Hochul. And then in some parts of the district, you'll probably hear people saying, you know, what are you doing with this bail reform? And, uh, and, you know, you need to repeal the whole reforms you did and, and give judges more discretion and lock more people up. How are you navigating, um, the changes that have been made and that issue being one of the leaders on the, on the bail reform issue and compromises that have been reached. And they haven't necessarily, as you've explained, even to me on this show in the past, you know, you have, you've reached compromises that were not necessarily your full, uh, loaf that you, you wanted, um, but right. how are you how are you talking specifically about that issue to voters um, either in this district or, or anywhere else? Well, you're right. The legislative process is not unilateral. It wasn't designed to be that way. A number of people of different viewpoints have to agree to get to a conclusion. And so we do the best we can. But there's been no issue I've ever dealt with that has been so misrepresented in the bail issue. And uh, when you sit across the table from someone and you explain to them uh, what it's really about, the fact that um, people who have means and have wealth uh, are on the streets regardless uh, no matter what they're charged with, uh, and those who are poor do not get that opportunity. The unfairness of that um, is is evident uh, to people once you get into that kind of a conversation. Um, now, that being said, there's situations like the changes we just made, because we're always trying to learn and improve, where someone who is repeat offending over and over and over again while they're out obviously should be treated differently, and we now have taken steps to deal with that circumstance. But the overall issue of whether we should require people to pay for their freedom before they're convicted of a crime um, is, uh, once you scratch the surface and actually learn about it, um, pretty clear where justice lies. Uh, you know, these are people who have not been convicted of crimes. We're taught since we're children in this country, you're innocent unless proven guilty. That's not how it works uh, as it relates to the bail system. So making those important reforms, making those changes, I think is something we're, I'm proud of. Um, mm -hmm. Can we always look to improve it and make it better? And is it imperfect because other people who may disagree with me have a voice in it? Yes, all of that is true. But overall, to try and remove the influence of money um, and means from the 
question of whether someone is free while they're awaiting their day in court um, is one that we should all be able to agree on. But it's been so badly demagogued. Um, you know, I've had I've had cases you see it on Twitter all day long where someone will be charged with a crime and be out on bail. In other words, bail was set and they paid their bail and they were out. And people will be like, look at what the bail laws have done. This person's out on bail. Well, no, yeah. obviously the bail reforms had nothing to do with that because there was bail set. The person mm-hmm. paid the bail. That was the case before we did anything. And it's the case now. And frankly, that's the uh, unfairness in the system we're trying to correct. Now, in the past, you know, judges in New York basically use setting a, a high bail as a proxy for a dangerousness standard and, and the ability to lock people up pretrial. Uh with that removed, that's where you get uh, some of these the the <laughs> positives of the reform, as you're outlining, where people are not only held because they can't afford to pay, um, and and you have this two tiered system of justice. But that's where you get into some of these other issues around, um, you know, considering some of the defendants' past history, including repeat offenders and so forth. So, in terms of some of the changes that were just made, as you just uh, alluded to a little bit, uh, things related to past history, uh, things related to repeat offenses. This is a version of allowing judges to assess a dangerousness to society. Correct. I mean, that's how Governor Hochul has talked about it. She said. We didn't want to give just a very broad discretion around this, but we are giving judges uh, some real, you know, sort of objective measures, she said, to, um, you know, to, to assess defendants. Well, no, look, let's be clear. New York has never had a dangerousness standard, um, even when we were at the you know, glory days of, of public safety that uh, opponents of Bill from like to point to, we did not have a dangerous stand- standard then. And we figured out a way to keep people safe uh, in our state. So, um, and we do not have one now. It's different to say that if someone has been given the opportunity to be free while they're waiting um, for their day in court and recommit or are charged with recommitting the same offense and then do it again and then do it again, that a judge should not have the ability to stop that from happening. <laughs> That's what those are the changes we just recently made. Um, but broadly speaking, some of the crimes that um, are not bail eligible, uh, in fact, most of them are so uh, low on the, in terms of the level of offense that they are, that the penalty for conviction would be less than the time they would spend in jail waiting for their day in court if if they were forced to um, to be incarcerated during that time. And so that obviously is not sensical. Um, and so I, I think there's just a culture of people that would like to throw away the key uh, for a whole class of people that, by the way, is not their group of people. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about racial disparities, uh, economic disparities, um, but if someone's not poor and of color, there's an element um, in our country that says, throw them all in jail, lock away, lock them up, throw away the key, and I don't care about them. That is not the approach that we take um, mm-hmm. in, in New York State. So we are trying to come up with a system that um, is as fair as possible, that provides for the safety of people, but also does not deny people justice. Mm-hmm. And are you comfortable with this uh, recent set of changes? Do you feel like things are at a even better calibrated place now? 
Yeah, we 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 always hope so that as we make changes that um, we are making progress um, in the broader sense of the word. And um, yes, I think that we are in a place now where um, we are ensuring that uh, you don't get some kind of the unfortunate outcomes um, that the New York Post in particular likes to point to. Um, but. Uh, at the same time, preserving this notion that if you're being charged with a low-level offense, you should not be held in jail just because you don't have $500 to pay your way out. Mm-hmm. All right. You just uh, also helped lead negotiations on uh, the response to the Supreme Court's ruling in the concealed carry case. I mentioned in the opening uh, here of this discussion, you uh, were, were preparing this, obviously. The governor's office working with the legislature, uh, expecting this decision from the court. Uh, you've now passed in special session uh, some new requirements around gun permitting, around uh, restrictions on concealed carry in a number of uh, sensitive locations. Um, are you expecting uh, these this new law to be challenged? And how how confident do you feel about you know that being uh, the new law being upheld? I think the answer has to be, of course, we're expecting it to be challenged because everything is challenged. And mm-hmm. so we we took great care to come up with a response that um, uh, used elements that were specifically authorized in the Supreme Court's decision. So the sensitive locations, for example, uh, is something that the Supreme Court decision itself cited as something that would be permissible. Um, and so we took... Um, uh, took advantage of that opportunity to identify so many of the locations where guns should not be permitted, uh, school grounds, for example, or anywhere where children congregate or um, places where people in general congregate, such as tourist locations like Times Square. Um, so I think, look, with the Supreme Court, you never know where things are going to land because if you thought the state court of appeals was bad, the U.S. Supreme Court is uh, is a whole other level. Um, but we did what was responsible to provide for the safety of New Yorkers within the confines that the court um, set for us. Now, if they go and change those parameters again, then we'll have to react accordingly. I think, unfortunately, we're going to be in this ongoing tug of war between states and the Supreme Court. Um, this is why state uh, government now is more important than it's ever been, um, because the Supreme Court has made it clear that the power is going to devolve further down to the state level. Um, and so we have a greater responsibility than ever to provide a response for uh, for New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. As I said, you've also uh, taken some of those steps related to reproductive rights and uh, and again, passing um uh, some measures earlier this year, and then uh, the first passage of a state constitutional amendment coming on a, a quality amendment that includes um, state constitutional protect- protections for reproductive rights. And that'll have to go uh, be passed again by the next legislative class, either next year or the year after, and then go before voters for approval to be added to the state constitution. Uh, so that that coming as well. All right. We're in our last couple minutes here with the uh, state Senate uh, deputy leader, Michael Janaris, a Democrat from Queens, who has uh, been a leader on on the policy and budget negotiations in uh, the legislature and with the governor and also on the campaign side. Um, And there's some elections, of course, coming up this year for state Senate that will, I don't think anybody thinks, impact the control of the state Senate, but certainly, uh, you know, could impact the the margin that Democrats have control of the Senate. Um, But before we, we close on one final note on those elections, 
Anything else on the on the legislative side here that you want to highlight in terms of either recent things that um, you, you're particularly happy to have uh, seen to the finish line, or anything that's on your you know personal legislative agenda that you didn't quite get to the finish line that is really um, you're trying to tee up for for the next session, assuming you're reelected? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you one of each, uh, Ben, and then. Uh, you know, events on the ground have a way of changing um, yes. what the priorities are as we go. But uh, I've been working for a couple of years now on a, a revolutionary antitrust bill for New York that would change the way we um, are able to go after these mega corporations that are uh, disproportionately powerful in the market in ways that no one could ever have imagined, even you know, certainly not 100 years ago when these laws were first written. We've got it through the Senate working on uh, our colleagues in the Assembly, but that would be something of national import if we're able to set a standard that allows greater enforcement against uh, some of the modern day um, robber barons uh, that we have um, in this country. Um, so that's one that's on my agenda as a priority going forward. Uh, one thing that we were able to do, because um, I've also been a champion of, of animal rights, um, is pass through both houses now a ban on the retail sale of, of uh, dogs, cats, and rabbits. Um, and that's the the puppies in the window that you see when you're walking down the street, most people don't realize uh, generally come from puppy mills, um, often outside the state where the animals are abused, they're sick, the, the uh, parents, the mother uh, of these animals are often um, discarded when they're no longer able to, to bear children. It's really awful stuff that um, touches every single retail uh, pet store in the state that sells animals. Uh, and we're trying to, to take a stand and, and prohibit that sale let people either adopt animals that are in need of rescue, and there's so many of them that could use that uh, that help. Uh, or if someone wants a particular breed, we would still allow for uh, the um, person to go deal directly with the breeder um, where they would get to lay eyes on the facility and see for themselves that it's not a puppy mill um, when they get the, uh, the animals that they get to take home and become part of their family. But the current situation is just riddled with awful, awful stories of abuse. And uh, hopefully we can put an end to that uh, with Governor Hogle's signature. I was just going to say, you need you need the bill signed by the governor. Uh, what's your indication as to where she's leaning? Uh, I don't really have one. I've, I've mm-hmm. spoken with her team uh, more than once about it. They're reviewing it. Uh, you know, this is an issue that generally requires some level of education. So I took a couple of years to get it through the legislature. Uh, most people just don't realize there's anything wrong with it or the stores will tell you what these are licensed breeding facilities, which technically is true, but there's little to no enforcement of these uh, places once they get their license. And uh, the way we were able to convince so many members of the legislature, both parties, by the way, passed overwhelmingly in a bipartisan fashion in both houses, was I would say to them, anyone that had questions, just give me the name of a store you're worried about. And then we pull the violation list. And there's not a there's not a single store that sells animals in the state that has not been touched by uh, the puppy mills industry and how uh, awful it is for the animals. And they don't, they often don't appreciate that these are living things, not commodities. And so we had a store on Long Island that the attorney general shut down because it was selling sick animals that had come from mills. And their response, their actual response to complaints were, well, if we sold the sick animal, the person could bring it back, we'll exchange it for another one. No regard whatsoever for the sick animal, just treating it like you bought a product uh, from Amazon and need to put it in a package and ship it back to get a new one. Uh, and that's the problem with the industry is they're not considering these things as 
living beings that are parts of our families and are deserving of the respect that any living being should have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is there any other bill uh, that is has been passed by the legislature uh, awaiting the governor's uh, veto or signature or chapter amendments? Uh, any other that's top of your list that you want to see signed? Uh, well, we're, we're trying hard, as always, to bring uh, more transparency back into government. Uh, the previous administration was uh, very much flawed in that regard. And so I think there's efforts to give the state controller back some of the powers he had uh, to oversee state contracts. Um, the Public Authorities Control Board was stripped of some of its authority um, under yeah, Andrew Cuomo because he, he was upset. With about, you, about, yes. You know, yes. it's funny. There's so much to discuss with you. I, I kept that one off my list here, but you had to bring it up in our last minutes. Uh, we'll talk about it another time. But uh, yeah, the, the, the Public Authorities Control Board, the governor, the day we're talking here, Tuesday, July 12th, the governor was just asked about whether she's going to sign that. And uh, it relates uh, at least, you know, has some some impact a little bit on uh, what she's doing on her Penn Station area development plan. So there's some interesting stuff happening there, but we don't have we won't get into it all now. We'll save it for another time. You want to see those signed. All right. Last question. Uh, the landscape here for the fall elections, obviously there's primaries first. I know, you know, that's, that's the focus for a lot of people, the August primaries for the state Senate seats, but we're not that far off from the fall elections. Um, are there specific districts in the state Senate um, that you're particularly focused on trying to hold for your Democratic members? I assume, obviously, Long Island always has some battlegrounds. Uh, just uh, in in you know broad strokes here, any any couple of districts that you're most focused on holding in the in the general election? Well, remember now we have new districts, so kind of right. a normal analysis is skewed a little bit. But j- broadly speaking, it's always Long Island, Hudson Valley, and upstate cities. That's where the battlegrounds are in the state Senate. Mm-hmm. That's where we've had great success to get us to the supermajority. Um, we're not, it's not lost on us that the uh, midterm election with an incumbent uh, Democrat always is a rough time and a rough climate. Uh, so I think we're seeing some of that. So it, um, we have to fight kind of upstream as it relates to that. But fortunately, we've gotten ourselves the largest majority uh, in state's history by being effective at our campaigning and our, um, uh, our policy making to the point where voters keep reaffirming their decision to send us back. Uh, so we'll, we'll kind of withstand what this year brings and we'll, we'll be ready for more. Mm-hmm. No specific races you want, or districts you're, you're focused on? No, we're, we're focused on a lot. I mean, that's one of the, we have an embarrassment of riches in terms of our members. And so we have probably a dozen mm-hmm. races that we're monitoring. It's too early right. to tell where the, where the battlegrounds will fall just yet. And just quickly, are you 100% behind all current Democratic incumbent state senators or is that not a given? Um, in November, certainly. You're no, asking about in the primaries? primaries, forgive me. Yes, in the no, primaries. We, um, we take a bit of a different approach in the assembly. As a conference, we do not involve ourselves in primaries. Mm-hmm. Um, our view is whoever the voters of a district seem fit to nominate to represent our party will support them in November. Um, mm-hmm. The one exception to that was when you know we had members uh, or Democratic nominees who weren't committed to sitting with Democrats, so we did involve ourselves uh, back when the IDC was around. But um, at this point, we do not. We focus our energies and our resources on winning elections in November. Mm-hmm. And just quickly, are you personally supporting Gustavo Rivera in the Bronx? I certainly am. 
Yeah, what I just said applies to the kind of the SEC and the yes, conference yes. as a whole, uh, but individuals uh, are free to make their own decisions, and I, I'm certainly supporting Gustavo. And Kevin Parker in Brooklyn? Um, I have not gotten involved in that race, and I'm not, I don't know how uh, serious that primary is for him, but I know Gustavo's in a tough fight, and he's been a great colleague for over a decade, so I'm happy to be okay. supporting him. All right, we'll leave it there. Uh, State Senate Deputy Leader Michael Janaris, thanks very much for the time, and be well. Thanks so much, Ben. All right, take care.